0: This is The Big B.M.
1: Analyzing now.
0: A bi-weekly
1: podcast for the Baylor Medicine Internal Medicine Residency Program. Stand clear. Welcome to The Big Big B.M.
2: Welcome, everyone, to Episode 4 of The Big B.M., our podcast for Baylor residents. We are super excited to announce... 299 downloads of our show. So this should be the 300th download coming out with this episode. And uh, also exciting, we are now launching on Apple Podcasts. So big steps for the big BM.
1: Big steps for the big BM. Thank you, Jackie. So does anybody have any good news that we can share from the program? Yeah, I have some good news. Everyone is about to finish up block one, going strong, finishing up the first block for the new interns, new upper levels, finishing up the first block as upper levels, and uh, PGY3s are still chugging along, so doing great for everyone, I think. And first blocks is new
2: chief, guys. We're finishing up our first block, too.
1: Woohoo! All right! I have to say that the biggest growth I've seen are the new PGY2 upper levels who just four weeks ago were self-proclaimed interns, and now they're leading the teams. It's amazing to see. You guys are doing an awesome job. So let's get started with episode four. What do you have for us, Tony? In episode one, we had a matchup between Eminem Grill and Fadi's. And this episode, we're bringing back the segment. Um, we have a matchup between Tacos Gogo and Torchies. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Dr. Fold is from Smith Clinic. Tacos a Gogo or Torchies?
0: Oh, uh, we're a Torchies family.
1: And why is that?
0: Well, it's a few blocks from our house, and I've never eaten a tacos a go so I have to say we're a torchies family, and I also like the Good & Company Taqueria on Kirby and uh, West Park.
1: Daniela Carrasco, tacos a go or torchies.: Ooh, tacos a go And why tacos a go <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. Um, cheaper Hal Zang Tacos a go-go or Torchies?
2: Uh, I have something else Tacos a go-go is I like that better than Torchies But I go to 100% Taquito That place is amazing Because it's like legit Mexican uh, So it's not Tex-Mex um, It's legit Mexican tacos It's like a taqueria
1: Max Shannon, Texas native, Tacos a go-go or Torchy's?
2: I will have to say for me, um, Tacos a
0: go-go wins hands down. The number one reason is because they deliver on Uber Eats, and so, you know, Torchy's doesn't, which is great. And let's be honest, the only thing that anyone actually likes at Torchy's is a trashy trailer park. Uh, tacos a go has great breakfast tacos, great dinner tacos, great nachos, or, or chips and queso rather, and so you, you can't go wrong with anything you get there.
1: All right. Tacos of Go-Go versus torchies. So who won? Who came out on top?
2: I don't think there are any winners or losers. Everyone's a winner when there's tacos involved.
1: Everyone had their own uh, specific taco place that they eat. They like heard your shootout, but then they were like, actually, check out this yeah. place. Fair that you didn't include Velvet Taco or Taco Deli in this. Oh. So no clear winner here today. We all won.
0: Cuz we all got tacos. <laughs> Can't touch this. Can't touch
1: this. Stop. time. So a couple weeks ago we had a case in morning report of kicks which is Kaposi sarcoma, inflammatory cytokine syndrome. We asked Dr. Hamill about the kind of conditions he saw early on in the AIDS epidemic uh, back in the 1980s, and also the parallels that he may be seeing with the current pandemic that we're going through now.
0: We saw, you know, we saw weird things back then in those days. About 1980, probably 80, probably 88, I had a patient like that. We didn't know about Kicks back then. But this guy had, he, was, he worked for one of the real estate companies. He still does. And uh, he had Kaposi's all over his face, on his nose, and in his lungs. And he ended up in respiratory failure in the intensive care unit at the VA. And he was intubated on a ventilator. And it was due to Kaposi's. Um, and he was sick as a dog. And he got he only got a couple of doses of vinblastin, uh, I think, because uh, we didn't have a liposomal doxorubicin then. And then we started him on heart. And back then, heart was, you know, AZT and DDI or something like that. But God, he had a beautiful response, and his Kaposi's shrank away. And I still see him now. And I I, I still see him. His CD4 count now is 1,000. And he's got no evidence whatsoever anywhere of Kaposi's. I mean, back then, though, that was kind of rare to have somebody like that survive, though. We, We had shitty drugs. You give them you give them AZT for twenty weeks, and they'd all get resistant to it. And so it wasn't until we got the um, protease inhibitors that we really could start really curing these people. So,
1: have you noticed in the last few months any like parallels to what's going on right now with the COVID?
0: Well, so um, this morning the IDSA has this little chat room, and this morning I was reading it. And a guy was reading, um, he was an ER doc in Sherman Oaks, California in 1983. And he said they kept seeing these guys with, um, come in with pneumocystis and this stuff. And they would, they would wear hazmat suits when they saw them. And that's how it was, you know. Um, I still ha- I have a picture in one of my slideshows of the first patient I saw with HIV, who was at the VA in, um, at, in Madison. And it was the first patient in Wisconsin that had HIV. And we all, we gowned and gloved and masked and put hats and booties on to see these patients because we didn't know. Anything. And um, it was sort of like, it, yeah, it's sort of like it is now. Um, but back then it was a lethal disease, you know, I mean, totally lethal. At least this one, you got some chances
1: you feel like there's like a lot of mass hysteria? Like was the hysteria kind of similar then?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, when I first moved to Houston, somehow I got involved with the Houston Police Department because there were pictures in the news all the time. You see the policemen out there with their helmets on with face shields and wearing those, uh, you know, those yellow uh, dishwashing gloves, thick latex ones. They'd be out on the streets with those things, you know. And so they asked me to come lecture to them. I would go lecture to a police academy. So every graduate class, uh, the new class, I'd have to go talk to them about HIV. And it was good because they wanted to learn about it. But, yeah, there was a lot of hysteria back then. People uh, didn't want to be around these patients because they didn't know. Uh, People didn't want to take care of them. They are pretty prejudiced about it. But it was also sad for me, you know, because you'd see these guys, and most of them were young gay males at the time. And they were very meticulous about taking their drugs. And we didn't know about the half-life of HIV, of uh, AZT, for instance. We we knew that the extracellular half-life was very short. And so these guys would set their alarm clock to get up every four hours all night long to take their AZT. Um, But they all died because that's all they had was AZT and they'd get resistant to it. So, you know, I'd have weeks where two or three of my HIV patients would die. It was very, um, very uh, disturbing, and you didn't have anything to offer them. Now, if we had the patients now that we had back then, and the drugs we have now, those guys would all be alive today. They were so meticulous about taking their drugs. Yeah, you know, it was a weird time. Yeah, that was the, You know, there's a couple of uh, those email things that I get every day that are directed at HIV. And the, again, this morning there was one that suggested that. HIV care has really um, deteriorated during this COVID crisis, and that's probably one of the things that's that's gone the wayside because of that. Because people are are testing now for COVID and they're not testing for HIV, and and people aren't coming in to get their drugs probably as, as uh, religiously as they were before. And so, yeah, it's um, it's not a good thing. You guys have do you guys ever read that book and the band played on or see that? Uh,
1: it is one of the best book. books I've ever read.
0: Yeah, yeah, you ought to read it. If you ever, I think you can get it for a dime on Amazon. But you should read it because it's interesting.
1: The the recording that the author did, um, his his reporting is phenomenal of the early uh, HIV.
0: Yeah, you know, he died of it. Yeah, after, yeah, and then uh, yeah, Zavin brought up Abraham Verghese's book. His book was interesting to me um, <clears throat> because. He started his training just about simultaneously at the same time I did. And so some of the stories that he had in his book, you know, I could kind of identify with because it was the same type of stuff that I was seeing. I mean, he trained in Tennessee, but, um, you know, we saw the similar types of things in uh, Wisconsin. Yeah. A lot of good books about that, that, that time. Thank you, Dr. Hamill for another good
1: Hamill time. The books that were mentioned, and the band played on by Randy Schultz, My Own Country by Abraham Verghese. Uh, so we had the uh, fantastic opportunity to sit down with one of our APDs, Steph Sherman, to talk about her uh, her college thesis. She actually majored in uh, history of science, and uh, the title of her college thesis was A Mighty Girl, Fat Magnificent,
2: The Freak Show, Fat Lady, Obesity Discourse, and the Gays in the United States from 1840 to 1940. we had the chance to talk a little bit about the background of fat ladies and freak shows which is something that i certainly didn't know a lot about you know how medicine impacts society and vice versa steph is also going to talk a little bit about implicit bias and some of the things that she learned from writing her thesis and how that can inform uh, our practice of medicine today
0: Hurry, hurry, step this way, the strangest sight on the island. We've got the show if you've got the dime. It's just starting. So hurry, hurry, look them over, the lady without a head. There
1: are thin ones. There are fat ones. They're all inside.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Steph Sherman. I am one of the associate program directors here at Baylor and uh, hospital medicine faculty on the teaching teams at the VA and Bentob. I uh, am really excited to be on the podcast at the beginning of the year and looking forward to meeting everyone in person eventually. I'll acknowledge that it might be jarring to hear the words freak show and fat lady said so casually, uh, but I just want to emphasize the point is not at all to be derogatory here. These terms are meant in this discussion to talk about concepts um, that are historical entertainment entities uh, about which I wrote in this senior thesis. So the backstory on why they picked this usual unusual topic is that I was a history of science undergrad major and was required to do a senior thesis and had done previous coursework in the department specifically on the history of medicine and then also some classes that touched on themes of gender and sexuality. And in my senior fall, I took a seminar course before starting to write my thesis that was on historical concepts of monsters. It was a really interesting course, and a few of the sessions talked about freak shows as a historical entity, and uh, those sessions really piqued my interest in the topic. Partly because growing up in a local fair outside Albany, New York every summer, Even in the 1990s, there were actually freak shows at the fair. And now my parents didn't let me go, of course, um, but this may have subconsciously made me even more curious about how different human bodies were presented in this way as entertainment. So that's the story behind uh, the topic I picked. Now, ladies and gentlemen, right now you happen to be standing in front of Tiers' famous wine bath review. You're not going to come out of here satisfied if you get a peek. You want a darn good look, and I don't blame you, that's what you're going to get. Now, that doesn't mean that the ladies can't go. Ladies can go as well as the men. But we don't want you ladies to feel for one moment that you're going to a Sunday school picnic. So the quick summary is that freak shows were a popular form of entertainment in the U.S. from the early 1800s onwards where physically or behaviorally or culturally different people performed in these shows on the streets or at circuses or at fairs and this tradition continued up through the 20th century although became probably less mainstream in the late 20th century and maybe a bit um sort of seedier type of entertainment but throughout this hundred year period fat ladies were regular and popular performers at these shows but the interesting thing I talked about in my thesis is their portrayal really evolved from the mid 1800s to 1900s. In the early 19th century, fat ladies were portrayed in an aggrandized, aristocratic, sophisticated way, whereas as we transitioned in the 20th century, they were infantilized and hypersexualized as characters. This shift in how these fat lady characters were played correlated with changing medical conceptions of obesity over that 100 year period as obesity began to be viewed as more pathologic and unhealthy by medicine, which was becoming a very dominant science-based tradition and discourse in American culture and society. So as perceptions of obesity evolved and became more negative, fat lady characters' portrayal evolved and became more negative too. Stay as strong as you like, come out when you like. Our greatest exhibit, Man, woman, and child has ever fed eyes on since they're born. So let's... I think through a historical lens, it's easier to see how much medicine affects society and in turn, how much society affects medicine. Though it's hard to be objective about this link in the present. But I think this research has made me aware of how much um, bias from our sort of social and cultural setting may consciously or unconsciously play into our views as doctors. When it comes to obesity, I mean, we learn in medical school there are, you know, unrefutable negative health effects. They're associated with diabetes, obstructive, obstructive sleep apnea, other medical conditions. But I think we more implicitly learn that there's some blame belongs to patients for this body state although it's really not fully fair, right? There are medical conditions that uh, impose uh, obesity on people. And then of course, life circumstances play a lot into it, right? Access to healthy food choices is really not available to everyone. Um, So I think a way to sort of mitigate this implicit bias is to not ascribe obesity to someone's identity. For example, the way we try and avoid saying a cirrhotic patient and instead say a patient with cirrhosis we maybe should be more mindful of avoiding calling someone an obese patient and instead a patient with obesity, sort of separating their um, you know medical condition from who they are as an individual.
0: Now our big show is over, and late tonight, we will load up, hurry away, keep a date in another town tomorrow morning.)
1: Thank you, Dr. Sherman. What a fascinating look into your college thesis. This concludes episode four of The Big BM. Thank you to my co-chiefs and everybody else involved in producing the podcast. We look forward to collaborating with everybody on future episodes. Until then, stay
0: safe, everybody. The Big BM.